casting all your cares upon Him because He cares for you. Before we begin our study of God's Word this evening, let's make sure that we are prepared for study of God's Word and in fellowship. A few moments of uh, silent prayer to utilize 1 John 1, 9 if necessary, and then we'll begin. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the privilege we have to gather together this evening and to study your word for the fellowship that we have because of the death of Jesus Christ on the cross as a substitute for our sins and the salvation we have that is a free gift by faith alone in Christ alone. Now, Father, as we study your word, we pray that the Holy Spirit would challenge us with the principles that are here and motivate us towards pursuit of the high ground of spiritual maturity. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, the last two or three weeks as we worked our way through uh, this section in James 3, everybody's walking in late tonight. There must have been a traffic jam on 164. As we worked working our way through James, we took a look at uh, postmodernism and we looked at some different views and Sometimes it's a little fun to compare different viewpoints on things, and every now and then I get something interesting across the Internet that I need to, in modern psychobabble parlance, share with the congregation. So this will help you develop a little insight into the difference between various religious viewpoints. It's called Toys and Religions. Capitalism. He who dies with the most toys wins. Hare Krishna, he who plays with the most toys wins. Judaism, he who buys toys at the lowest price wins. Catholicism, he who denies himself the most toys wins. Anglicanism, they were our toys first. Greek Orthodox, no, they were ours first. Branch Davidians, he who dies playing with the biggest toys wins. Atheism, there is no toy maker. Islam, you must force the world to play with this exact toy. Other toys are forbidden. Polytheism, there are many toy makers. Evolutionism, the toys made themselves. Church of Christ scientist, we are the toys. Communism, Everyone gets the same number of toys, and you go straight to the opposite of heaven if we catch you selling yours. Amish, toys with, bat- with batteries are a sin. Tao, it takes a while to catch some of it. Taoism, the doll is as important as the dump truck. Mormonism, every boy may have as many toys as he wants. Voodoo, let me borrow that doll for a second. (laughs) Jehovah's Witnesses, he who places the most toys door-to-door wins. (laughs) Pentecostalism, he whose toy can talk wins. Existentialism, toys are a figment of our imagination. 
Confucianism. Once a toy is dipped in water, it is no longer dry. <laughs> Non-denominationalism. We don't care where the toys came from. Let's just play. Okay, enough humor. You know, the last couple of weeks as we went through our little study of postmodernism, just to let you know of its relevance, a member of the congregation pointed out the fact that in, in recent um, in-service uh, classes at a local uh, uh, school district, the, one of the teachers, one of the instructors that came in, one of the speakers, was the president of Eastern Connecticut State University. And in the course of his encouraging them to move on to be better teachers, to produce better, better students. He pounded the podium and said, it's not about content, it's about feelings. 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 Postmodernism, folks. That's what these people are getting. That's where your kids are headed is a school system that doesn't care what they learn in terms of content. It's how they feel about it. And see, that's why when, and, that's, and this, even though postmodernism may be a new concept to you, it's been around for at least 15 or 20 years in, in some varying developing stages. And that's why we're producing a culture where people come to a congregation like ours where the emphasis is on content and not how you feel about it, and they just feel totally out of place. And it's like we're speaking a foreign language to them. Because the culture teaches them that what matters is how you feel. And what Scripture teaches is it matters how, what God says. And that's what counts. And God really doesn't care how we feel as long as we do what God says to do. Now, open your Bibles with me to James chapter 3. And we're in verse 17, wrapping up our study of this third chapter of James. So I was sitting at my desk today, thinking my way through this last chapter and examining its relationship to the next chapter. I I think I started understanding some things, at least contextually, that I had not understood before or at least had wrestled with. Now, if we go back to the theme of James, just by way of review to get us back into the subject, the theme is testing. And in the very first chapter, James gives the mandate, Count it all joy, my brethren, when you encounter various trials, knowing that the testing of your faith produces endurance. Now, that is a hard thing to do. You can't just walk up to people and say especially if they're going through very difficult times, will count it all joy, brethren, because they're liable to practice their right hook on you. It's very difficult, even if you've been a believer for some time and got some doctrine under your belt, to count it all joy when you hit certain trials. I think that as I've gone through this epistle again and again, that... This is what James is trying to get across to the believer is how you get to the point in your spiritual life and spiritual growth so that you can fulfill that initial mandate. What it takes to be able to count it all joy. And he talks about testing. 
Now, as we have seen, there are two categories of testing. There's adversity testing and there's prosperity testing. And most people I know, at least, are just waiting to go through the prosperity test. Sometimes we wait so much to go through the prosperity test, we miss it when we have it and we fail it. Because prosperity doesn't mean financial prosperity at all. And God gives us numerous blessings, and sometimes they're mixed with some adversity at the same time. And the issue, whether we have prosperity or adversity, is how do we respond to these life situations on the basis of the Word of God? And adversity is the outside pressure, and stress, as we've defined it, is the inside pressure. Adversity is what negative external circumstances do to us, and stress is what we do to ourselves. Adversity is inevitable. We're all going to go through it at one level or another, and everybody has. And in my experience, everybody at some time in their life goes through some extremely difficult adversity. And a lot of times we never know that. We never know what people have gone through, and we see them sitting across the congregation, or we know them for years, and perhaps we never know some of the heartaches that somebody else has had in their life. But everybody goes through adversity. But stress is optional. Stress is dependent upon your volition, whether or not you're going to utilize God's stress busters, God's problem-solving devices to handle the adversity. And what happens is when we choose to solve these problems on our own, that is what creates the inner turmoil. That's what creates the stress in the soul. That's what stirs up everything on the inside in terms of mental attitude sins such as worry, anxiety, anger, uh, revenge motivation, bitterness. All of that is the result of converting the outside pressure of adversity to the inside pressure of stress in the soul. And when we look at this epistle as James outlines it, he's going to cover three basic principles that are important to master if you're going to get to the point where you can count it all joy. And in terms of his organization, he says the first principle and the primary principle is to be quick to hear. And that was from about 1, where was that, 119 or 121, 122, 122 down to 226. And then the second principle is slow to anger, which are, excuse me, slow to speak, has to do with sins of the tongue, and that's covered in three, and I'm going to revise this outline, three, one through twelve. And then the third category is slow to anger, and anger is used as simply a representative, one mental attitude sin among a host to represent the entire panorama of mental attitude sins. And he starts this in 3.13, and I think that's important because he's building an argument. That's why it's important to understand the structure of a man's argument. And by argument, I don't mean the kind of uh, dial, hostile dialogue that most people think of when they think of argument. The term is also used of a lawyer presenting his case. That's the way in which I'm using it. Any writer who is, is articulating a position is gradually building an argument. He lays out one principle, then another principle, then another principle. And so when we do Bible study, this is what a pastor has to do, is work through the whole document and try to figure out what those major themes are. 
And one of the major themes, and James is wonderful for this, because he, he just has a remarkable way of interweaving his themes. For example, since verse 13, we've been talking about wisdom versus foolishness, divine viewpoint versus human viewpoint. And all the way back in James 1.5, in the midst of his opening remarks, James says, if any of you lacks wisdom, let him ask of God. And so right there we see the introduction of the concept of wisdom, and then he comes in and gives us some more information about it. And he's going to contrast in this opening paragraph that we've been studying from 3.13 down to 18, he's been contrasting human viewpoint wisdom versus divine viewpoint wisdom. And he shows in this that if you're following human viewpoint wisdom in resolving the problems, the adversities, the difficulties in life, then the result is going to be the fragmentation of the soul as a result of the domination of mental attitude sins. Uh, Selfish ambition, bitter jealousy, arrogance. And this is all wisdom, he says in verse 15, that comes down from above and is earthly, natural, and demonic. And then he says in verse 16, for where jealousy and selfish ambition exist, there is disorder and every evil thing. And that reminds us that back in James 1, 5, and 6, that the person who did not ask in God of faith was like a, in faith was like a double-minded man being tossed to and fro. That's the disorder. It's this instability inside the soul that creates instability in life. And we're going to see this develop even further when we come into chapter 4, and he talks about friendship with the world and versus, which is hostility towards God. So again, we see this contrast continuing into, into verse 4. So I really think he makes his, his shift to talking about slow to anger. The introduction to that section is 3.13 to 18, where he sets up the contrast between wisdom from above and wisdom from the earth, human viewpoint versus divine viewpoint thinking. And the result is your life. How you think when you encounter trials determines whether or not there is stability or instability in your life. And as Americans, we've looked at the fact that we are influenced by various thought systems. The primary one, I think, that most people run into and most people uh, recognize is, is pragmatism. If it works, it's right. And so a lot of people think that they solve their problems because somehow they make it through and they don't realize that if you're using human viewpoint strategies to solve problems and to avoid stress in the soul, then what happens is 5, 10, 15 years down the road, your soul starts fragmenting and you're going to have problems. So we have to look at the fact that if you want to have a long-term positive results in handling adversity, you need to start by handling these things through the principles of God's Word. So we laid out our chart here, and we go through the problem-solving devices of stress busters by way of review. The entry point, this represents a fortress, fortification that we build around the soul, that is erected around the soul as a result of the doctrine that we learn. As we learn it, and the Holy Spirit uh, transforms it into epinosis doctrine, it then strengthens the soul. That's what that word edify means. It means to strengthen the soul. 
so that we have some strength there to handle problems and adversity when it comes. The entry point is 1 John 1, 9, Confession. And then filling of the Holy Spirit deals with the whole issue of the power base. And that is what we've been studying to some degree on early, the early hour on Sunday morning in terms of walking by means of the Spirit. That really extrapolates out from the filling of the Spirit. That's the foundation of it. And in one sense, you could say that the entire rest of the fortress is built by, the, by walking by means of the Spirit. But it starts off here. It's the automatic result of confession. But confession is one aspect of it. And filling of the Holy Spirit provides the power base, plus it provides the uh, Holy Spirit who teaches us and instructs us regarding doctrine and met- so that it can be metabolized in our soul. Then we have the basic uh, problem-solving devices, the faith rest drill, grace orientation, and doctrinal orientation. And that leads to the personal sense of our eternal destiny, which, again, we're studying in Galatians right now, understanding that we have an inheritance reserved for us in heaven, and whether or not that inheritance becomes our possession when we're there, ruling and reigning with Christ determines what we do with the spiritual assets that God gives us today. Then we have the love complex, the triplex, personal love for God the Father, unconditional love for all mankind, occupation for Christ, and that leads to inner happiness, which is the counted all joy when you encounter various trials. So the way to get there is to erect this fortress in the soul that protects the soul from the outside pressures of adversity. All of that by way of introduction and reminder of where we've come from in James. And now let's get to verse 17. Verse 17 and 18 describe for us the characteristics of divine viewpoint thinking. The verse reads, But the wisdom from above is first pure, then peaceable, gentle, reasonable, full of mercy and good fruits, unwavering, and without hypocrisy. It starts off with the contrastive de, which is, in effect, should be translated a but, de, and indicates the contrast with what has gone before, and that is the description of human viewpoint thinking. So once again, and I can't stress this enough, The Scripture presents the fact that there are two opposing positions. In our study in Galatians, we've seen light versus darkness. We've seen that same theme developed in the Gospel of John. Walking by means of the Spirit, walking by means of the flesh or the sin nature, walking on the basis of grace, walking on the basis of law. And here we're going to see uh, divine viewpoint thinking versus human viewpoint thinking. So these are mutually exclusive. Throughout the Scripture, there's always this juxtaposition. There's God's way and there's man's way. There's not some middle way, some via media, where you can just walk along with one foot on both sides and be a little carnal and a little spiritual. And you'll always hear somebody come along and say, well, even in our best moments, 
there's always a little bit of arrogance there. Well, there's a little bit of arrogance there, then you're out of fellowship. How much sin? This is the question that I can't get answered. How much sin does it take to violate the absolute righteousness of God and to get us out of fellowship? Does it have to be known sin or unknown sin? How much darkness violates the pure light? One or the other. This wisdom, and the word here is sophos, the Greek word for wisdom, and it's not referring to wisdom in the Greek sense. This word, as well as um, a couple of other words that we'll run into, for example, peace in verse 18, are words that gain their meaning not so much from the Greek culture and their Greek etymology, but from the Hebrew Old Testament concept of the word. That's one of the things that you have to uh, work through in your study of, of Scripture. When you look at certain words, is this primarily a Greek word, and is the Apostle Paul or James or John using this in a Greek sense, or is this a word that is primarily influenced by an Old Testament Hebrew concept? And here we have the concept of wisdom. Now, wisdom in human viewpoint thinking is academic knowledge. It's instruction. It's learning a lot of data and facts. Now, I'm not arguing against learning data and facts because no matter what it is, you've got to learn that before you can get anywhere. Everything is predicated upon having that knowledge base. But in divine viewpoint, the end result of Sophos is not knowledge for knowledge's sake. It's not mere intellection or academic accumulation of information so you can impress people with how much you know. The end result is the concept of skill. It comes from the Greek, I mean, excuse me, the Hebrew word, chokhmah. Looks like this in the Hebrew. C-H-O-K-M-A-H. And chokhmah has as its fundamental root meaning the concept of skill. Skill. This is the word that is used in Exodus when it talks about how the Spirit of the Lord came upon Bezalel, who was one of the craftsmen who was building the furniture uh, for the tabernacle and the goldsmiths that were used to, to uh, fashion all of the instruments in the temple, that the Holy Spirit came upon them and gave them wisdom to do their task. He gave them the skill he gave the seamstresses the skill so that as, and the tailors so that as they made the curtains that went into the tabernacle, he gave them the skill to weave the cloth and to, and to sew it together. He gave the uh, goldsmiths the skill to put together the Ark of the Covenant and to lay it all out and to decorate it and to, and to uh, make the cherubim that graced the top of the mercy seat. All of this it talks about a skill that was given. Now you take that concept of skill and then you apply it to life and what we're talking about is being able to face those outside pressures of adversity with a skill and beauty and grace that brings glory to God. That's what wisdom is biblically. It's that ability to create something in your life that has beauty and grace as a result of the application of doctrine. That's why the Proverbs says in two or three places 
the fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. Because you can't produce something skillful in your life, something of grace and beauty in your life, unless it's built upon authority orientation to God. So that's your starting point. Once you understand who and what God is, and that's why it's important to go through the doctrines of the essence of God, the attributes of God, the doctrines of the Trinity, is because people run around, they talk about how they love God, and you can't love someone you don't know, and they don't have a clue about the essence of God, the attributes of God. They can't explain the omniscience of God. and They don't know how it impacts their life. They're scared by all these big words, so they just talk about how much they love God because it just felt good at church on Sunday morning. There was a church in Houston, one of the largest, in fact, and their motto was, Fellowship of Excitement. Because it just feels good. And they were fairly squared away, at least on basic doctrine. But it felt good. So we have to produce a skill. Skill comes from knowledge. Those of you who are involved in any kind of construction trades or ever do anything with your hands, you know that that takes time to develop those skills to create anything of value. It takes practice. That's why when we look at the problem-solving devices here, these are called spiritual skills. A skill is something, it's a basic technique, you learn basic mechanics with it, and then you practice it over and over again. Every time you get a chance, you practice it. And so you have these small adversities in life. The guy that cuts you off on the freeway, the uh, power goes out uh, when you don't want it to right in the middle of cooking dinner. And these are the little tests that you have, the little opportunities to practice the skills of problem solving over and over again so that when the big adversities come, you've built in this practice. Practice makes perfect, they say. That's wrong. You know why that's wrong? It's perfect practice that makes perfect. You can practice something wrong all day long, (laughs) and you'll never get perfect. So it's perfect practice that makes perfect. And so you have to drill over and over again. This is what an athlete does out on the field. You get... Uh, I know back in high school they'd have two-a-days and three-a-day practices, and they get out there and they run through these tackle drills and blocking drills. And the same thing takes place in music. It's The same thing is true in any art. You, you take somebody who's in dance, and they practice certain moves over and over and over again to get that into muscle memory so that when they're out there on the stage and you see the dancers in the ballet performing, it's just this beautiful, fluid movement except if you saw the years that they spent, the drudgery they spent practicing five, six, eight hours a day going through technique after technique after technique, focusing on the basic mechanics, breaking each movement down into each subset until they could get it each, each section together and then put the whole together and then make it fluid, you'd be amazed. But they produce something of grace and beauty. And that's what we do in the spiritual life when we're facing adversity using the problem-solving devices. These are skills that we practice over and over again so that when a problem comes up, we immediately handle it. Use faith, rest, drill. What kind of promise deals with this? What kind of doctrinal argument, doctrinal rationale, or doctrinal conclusion fits this? How does, uh, does this involve a people test? Then I certainly have to think in terms of 
unconditional or impersonal love for all mankind? Does this involve some kind of a motivation in my life? I have to realize that I have an eternal destiny, and right now I'm going through the training ground and boot camp, and so what I'm, the decisions I make now and how I respond to this situation is going to determine who I am and what I'm doing in eternity and in the millennial kingdom. So you start thinking this way. It's thinking, thinking, thinking. And you know what happens when you start thinking doctrine? All of a sudden you have, as a consequence, the most incredible emotions. You don't run away from emotions. You have joy. Talk about the psalmist, Lord, return to me the joy of my salvation. After he sins and then he confesses his sin. But you have emotion. But emotion is always the responder in the soul. And the problem is that people get caught up in the Christian life and they start learning some doctrine and they have these wonderful emotions and then they want to try to regenerate those emotional feelings and they try to do it without going through the doctrinal pathway to get there. And as long as you're focused on thinking, 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 then the doctrine stabilizes your emotions and you have as a result the right kind of emotions and you have stability and peace and tranquility in your life, which is what we see in verse 18. But I'm getting ahead of myself. This wisdom is the wisdom of doctrine. This is not just academic information. It is the wisdom of doctrine, and we have seen the process by which the believer learns. The pastor-teacher communicates doctrine. The Holy Spirit, who indwells every single believer, also fills the believer. There's a distinction between the indwelling and filling ministries of God the Holy Spirit. When you're in fellowship, God the Holy Spirit is working to help you understand the doctrine, to comprehend it. And you have to exercise positive volition at that point because the Holy Spirit is not going to understand it for you. It's comparable to chewing food. He's not going to grab you and grab your mouth and start masticating the food up and down like this so that you'll swallow it and then stroke it. That's what I have to do when my dogs have to take a pill. Shove that pill down their throat and cramp their mouth shut and then you stroke their throat and finally they swallow that pill down. The Holy Spirit doesn't do that. He will make it understandable, but you have to understand it. That means that a couple of brain cells have to send an electrical charge back and forth and there has to be a little synopsis quiver between the neurons of the, of the brain and all of a sudden you begin to comprehend what the Scripture is saying. Now, once you comprehend it, it's nothing more than Gnosis doctrine. It's academically understood. You now understand that the Bible teaches that God is a trinity. He is three people in three persons, one personality, one, I mean one essence, that they are inseparable, they are all three eternal, they are all three equal deity. Now, you don't fully understand all of that because you're a finite creature and you never will. But you understand that's what the Scripture teaches, so now you have to decide whether or not you're going to accept it or reject it. At that point, you exercise positive volition. You say, the Bible teaches that. I believe it. And the Holy Spirit transfers it into the innermost thinking arena of the, of the soul, which is the heart, the cardia. And then it's stored doctrine ready for you to use it. That means now you've got the spiritual knowledge base to create something that is skillful. 
So you hit that adversity and you reach down into your soul and you pull the doctrine out that you've learned to apply to that situation and you begin to erect those bricks that edify, that build up that stronghold around the, around the soul. So this is how wisdom functions. Wisdom, it says here, is from above. The wisdom from above. Interesting word in the Greek. It looks like this. Anothen. A-N-O-T-H-E-N. That word is used in a very important passage in the New Testament. John chapter 3. Nicodemus comes to Jesus at night. Jesus says, A man cannot see the kingdom of God unless he is born anothen. Again. But remember when we taught that and went through the Gospel of John, we saw that it has two meanings. And Jesus used that to emphasize both aspects of regeneration. Born again, indicating a second time, and from above. Now this is an example of a use of anothen in verse 17, which does not have the again nuance. It simply means from above, emphasizing the source of this wisdom. It comes from God. God has revealed His thinking to us. That is the most remarkable thing that we'll ever come to grips with, is that the almighty, eternal, infinite, omnipotent God of the universe, who is, as, whose thoughts are far beyond our thoughts and whose ways are not our, our ways, He has Brought, that, brought his thinking or portions of his thinking down and articulated that to us and revealed that to us in propositional revelation and it is inscripturated in these 66 books of the Bible. That is incredible. You can know exactly what God's thinking is on any number of subjects. He's revealed that to us. We don't have to guess. We don't have to sit back and think, well, let me see, how do I think God would respond to this? What does my liver quiver say? What kind of hot flashes am I having today? We don't have to do that. We know precisely because God has clearly revealed it and He's revealed it to be understood. See, you you go to so many churches and you listen to them go through the Scriptures and you think, my, my, how did they ever get that out out of that passage? You just want, and they, they think, well, this is a big mystery. It's just one of those inscrutable things about the Bible. We can't really know God, and we can't even understand the Bible, so let's just sing another song. And everybody turn to their neighbor and put your arm around them and give them a big hug and tell them you love them, and let's all go home and be glad that we had a little encounter with God tonight. And it's sad, but that's generally how people treat the Scripture. But God revealed this to us to be understood so that we could advance to spiritual maturity and think like He thinks and to have His thoughts as our thinking. So the wisdom that comes from above is revealed to us and it is characterized by a series of adjectives here. And the first one is that it is pure. And this is from the Greek word, Hognoth. Looks like this. H-A-G-N-O-S. It's the adjective hagne here. It's from the same root as an, another word, hagias. It's this initial syllable, H-A-G, 
And that is the word for holy. Now, holy is one of those words that has been knocked around so much by churches and in religious contexts that most people don't have a clue as to what holiness means. And I remember when I was in, um, in seminary, I was in first year Hebrew. I think we did it in, no, it was second year Hebrew. That's when you get into word studies. And we were taught how to do a word study. We were sent home to do a word study on the Hebrew word Kadash. That's a Q-A-D-A-S-H. Kadash. And, of course, the whole exercise was to define what Kadash meant, which its basic root meaning is to be holy. That's what you'll see in the dictionaries. And it's related to sanctification, like hagias. Hagiasmas is the Greek word from which we get the English translation sanctification. So we have to study Kadash. And one of the things you do is you look through all the usages in the Scripture of the, um, of the noun, and then you look at all of the um, adjectival usage of it, and then you draw some conclusions. Well, one of the first things you notice as you read through Exodus and Leviticus is that when it's an adjective, it defines all of the t- instruments used in the temple, the bowls, the candlestick, the Ark of the Covenant, the, um, the tent itself, the clothing of the priests. Now, most people want to take a word like holy and they want to define it as morally pure. You ever seen a bowl that was morally pure? You ever seen a bowl that was immoral? I mean, these are inanimate objects. Morality is not the issue. Then you come along to the fact that the the, the, there's a form of the masculine noun, uh, kadshim, that applies to the, and also the feminine noun, that applies to the male and female cultic prostitutes associated with the fertility rites in the phallic cults of the ancient world. Now, how can cultic prostitutes be considered morally pure? Sort of scratch your head a little bit on that one. And then you have to come back and say, well, gosh, maybe our whole concept of holy needs to be revised a little bit. Now, if you look at this and you look at the root meaning of kadash as it relates to these bowls and these dishes and even the prostitutes, what do you find? What do they all have in common? These are objects or people who are dedicated exclusively to the service of God. Let me say that again. These are objects or people who are dedicated exclusively to the service of God. So the root meaning of kadash and hagias has to be that which is set apart to God. It's not pure. That is, that, that's a secondary or tertiary meaning of the word. Its fundamental meaning is that which has to do with the service to God. So when we come to our word here of uh, agne, it is going to relate to knowledge that is related to service of God. Now, think a minute. We get over to Romans chapter 12, verses 1 and 2. We're told that we are to not be conformed to the world but be transformed by the renewing of our mind 
in order that we can prove that the, that the will of God is pure and acceptable and holy. And that has to do with living a life that is set apart to the service of God. Uh, verse 1 begins, I beseech you therefore, brethren, by the mercies of God, that you present yourselves a living sacrifice. This is presenting yourself your whole life, your thinking, your whole physical life. doesn't mean you go off and you go into, uh, quote, you used to hear people talk about full-time Christian service when they would come through a church and try to recruit missionaries. Every believer is in full-time Christian service from the moment they're saved. It's called the royal priesthood. It's part of your ambassadorship. And see, you, we have to actuate that though, and that only comes through the development of doctrine, and we learn that that's our function in life. It's our spiritual service of worship. We are to serve God. And we can only know, know how to do that if we have divine viewpoint wisdom in the soul which forms the foundation of our service. So when it comes here, it says that the wisdom from above is first pure. Now, pure is not exactly the meaning here. As we've said, the root meaning is, is has to do with being set apart to God. And since God is... I want you to follow my reasoning here. Since God is absolute righteousness, and He cannot have fellowship with that which is unrighteous, that which is related to God must also be absolute righteousness. That's where the concept of purity comes in. And you see the development in the word kadosh in Hebrew back in Isaiah 6.3 when Isaiah is brought into the throne room of God and he falls on his face before God as he hears the seraphim crying out, Holy, 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 Lord God Almighty. And they, one of them flies to Isaiah with a burning coal and touches his lips. It's purification. So you see that is added not because it's the root meaning to be set apart, but if you're going to be set apart to God, you have to have the same kind of righteousness as God. So that brings in the idea of that which lacks any moral defect, lacks any blemish. So it then picks up the idea of lacking minus defect. And that's how I want to translate this here, because I think purity brings with it a lot of connotations that we don't want to want to haul around right now. The divine viewpoint wisdom from above is, first of all, without defect. There are no mistakes in divine viewpoint thinking. Now, get a, when you get a hold of that concept, it ought to revolutionize your thinking. There are no defects in God's thinking. So that gives us a basis then for being able to handle problems. Then we get to the second adjective here, which is it is peaceable. And this is from the Greek word ironeke. Looks like this. E-I-R-E-N-E-K-E. Now this has an interesting background in ancient or in classical Greek thought, it was usually juxtaposed to violence. 
That's how modern man wants to use peace. When they talk about Jesus being the Prince of Peace and came to bring peace, then that means we need to do away with warfare. But that's not how the Scripture uses this word. In fact, if we want to understand this particular word and its concept, we don't go back to Greek culture. You have to go back to the Old Testament where they had another word which looked like this in the Hebrew. Shalom. And shalom, although in a few occasions it is used as an opposite or in contrast to warfare or violence, primarily it refers to inner tranquility. To the absence of conflict, to the absence of turmoil, to the absence of disruption, to stability, to contentment. So we have to bring that idea when we, the New Testament writers are talking about peace. You have to have that Old Testament background to understand that they're not talking about the, uh, some pacifist movement, some anti-war movement. They're talking about having inner tranquility in the soul. So the wisdom from above is first without defect, and secondly, it brings tranquility. This is the opposite of what? Look at verse 14 again. In contrast, human viewpoint thinking is related to bitter jealousy, selfish ambition, and in verse 16 it produces disorder. This is the contrast. Divine viewpoint is not going to give disorder and instability in your soul when you go through trials and testing. It's going to produce tranquility. This is related to joy. Then it is gentle. Now, this, again, is another one of those concepts that people take out, out of context and run with, and they always have these pictures of the meek and lowly Jesus. And as we've seen in John, he's meek. word means that meek is related to the concept of, of uh, authority orientation, recognizing your place in God's plan and living in light of God's plan. It's an absence of arrogance, but it is strength based upon the power of God in doing what God wants in your life. And so when you, we find this word in the Greek epi, a case, It is related to E-P-I-E-I-K-E-S. It is related to grace orientation. So it brings us back to our problem-solving device, which has as part of grace orientation, humility and authority orientation. Humility means we realize that our life has nothing to do with who and what we are, but it's everything is dependent upon who and what God is. And so because of that, we can then respond in trials. We can, we can remain humble, not in arrogance. And we can deal with people in grace. That's what gentleness means, dealing with them in grace and not reacting in terms of bitter jealousy, vindictiveness, revenge motivation, hostility, and anger, which is pretty natural first blush response whenever anything doesn't go our way. It is peaceable, it is gentle, 
and then it is reasonable. This is the Greek word upethes. E-U-P-E-I-T-H-E-S which means something that is open to reason, it is rational, it is based on the use of the intellect. Notice what it doesn't say. It doesn't say the wisdom from, from above is emotional. There's no emotion, in fact, listed in any of the adjectives describing wisdom. In fact, it says the wisdom from above is rational. Now, we're not talking about rationalism as we've talked about in the last two or three weeks in terms of modern philosophical thinking where rationalism is divorced from the authority of God and it advocates the starting point as pure human reason. We're talking about the use of reason within the framework or based on the framework of divine revelation. It is the proper use of human intellect to understand the thinking of God. So the wisdom of God is without defect. It is It promotes tranquility. It is grace-oriented. It is rational. And it is full of mercy and good fruits. Full of mercy and good fruits indicates the production of it. It is full of mercy. This is another phrase, eleos. Meste, E-L-E-O-S, is the word normally translated mercy, which is grace in action. Mercy is grace in action. The use of grace towards other people, which is part of unconditional love for all mankind. And uh, mestos refers to, it means full, but it indicates a, a characteristic that is completely characterized by mercy and then good fruits, karpon, the normal word for fruit or production, agathon, which is intrinsic good. It has intrinsic good production. This is production of divine good. So that in the midst of trials, when we're operating under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and applying doctrine, the production is divine good and promotes spiritual growth. And then the last two characteristics... It is unwavering and without hypocrisy. And that means, again, that there is no defect in the wisdom that comes down from God and it does not advocate two different value systems. It is completely consistent from Genesis to Revelation, whether it's written by the Apostle John whether it's written by a herdsman like Amos in the Old Testament, whether it's written by a king like Solomon or a general like Joshua, or whether it's written by a former tax collector like Matthew, the entire Word of God is 100% consistent and presents the same framework, the same viewpoint from beginning to end. So here we have a remarkable description of human, I mean, of divine viewpoint thinking, and in verse 18 we see its production, which is in righteousness. The seed, whose fruit is righteousness, is sown in peace by those who make peace. 
And here we're not talking so much about the gospel as we are the seed of Scripture. So here you have the seed of Scripture being implanted. And we've seen this same analogy. James picks it up. He, he, there was sort of a, an echo of it back in uh, James chapter 1 where he said, In the exercise of his will, he brought us forth by the word of truth. So there you see this generation idea. We're brought forth by the word of truth. And it is the word of truth that is the seed. It is Bible doctrine. And the fruit is that which it produces. And that produces righteousness. Now this is not imputed righteousness. Whenever we get to a passage that talks about righteousness, we have to find out, well, what kind of righteousness is this? At the moment of salvation... When you put your faith and trust in Jesus Christ, God the Father, because every sin in human history was poured out on Jesus Christ on the cross, God the Father takes the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ and imputes that to you. You are still a sinner, you still have a sin nature, and you still perform sinful deeds. But God imputes to you, credits to your account, the perfect righteousness of Jesus Christ, so that when God's righteousness looks down on you, He approves of you what the righteousness of God demands, the justice of God executes. When the righteousness of God approves, then the justice of God blesses. And God provides blessing for the believer because of imputed righteousness. But we're not talking about imputed righteousness here. We're talking about production righteousness. This is the process of sanctification that we are expected to produce righteousness in the life of the believer. Passages that relate to imputed righteousness would be 2 Corinthians 5.21. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf. That was the imputation of our sin to Christ. He made Him who knew no sin to be sin on our behalf that we might become the righteousness of God in Him. That's the imputation of Christ's righteousness to us. For what does Scripture say? Romans 4, 3, and 5. And Abraham believed God, and it was imputed to him as righteousness. But the one who does not work but believes in Him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is reckoned as righteousness. But this is production righteousness. So point number one in the doctrine of production righteousness, the goal of the spiritual life is the production of the character of Christ. We are to be transformed into the image of Christ, Romans 8, 28, and 29. God is in the process of transforming our character into the character of Christ. Character matters. This we will see in our study of Galatians 5, 22 and 23, which describes another production passage, the fruit, karpos, the same word that's used here. There it's talking about it in relation to that which produces it, which is the Holy Spirit. We don't go out and say, I'm going to produce love today and joy and peace. We take in doctrine. We apply it. As a result of that, God the Holy Spirit produces the fruit on the tree. It's like if you have a fruit tree in your yard, you can't make it bear fruit, but you can do certain things to make that uh, likely. You fertilize it. You water it. You prune it. You do all of these things. And there's an inner growth dynamic that produces the fruit. That's what happens in the spiritual life. We take in the Word, we believe it, and it's the Holy Spirit who's that inner 
dynamic that produces the character transformation so that it's not done by the flesh, it's done by the Holy Spirit. The goal of the Christian life is the character of Christ. Point number two, this was one reason Christ died as our substitute on the cross. Not so believers could live as they desired and do what they wanted and have an enjoyable and happy life, happy in the world sense of happy, but so that the character of Christ could be developed in them and expressed through them as witnesses in the angelic conflict. 1 Peter 2.24 And He Himself bore our sins in His body on the cross that we might, that's a purpose clause, that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by His wounds you are healed. We are to live to righteousness. Point number three. Production righteousness is clearly spelled out as the goal of divine discipline and passing testing. This is why God disciplines us when we're out of fellowship, is to produce righteousness. Hebrews 12:11. All discipline for the moment seems not to be joyful but sorrowful, yet to those who have been trained by it afterwards it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness. Ephesians 5, 8, and 9 are familiar verses that we've gone over. For you, formerly, for you were formerly darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Walk as children of light, for the fruit of the light... Here's another production passage. The fruit of the light consists in all goodness and righteousness. So the fruit of the light in your life, which is doctrine illuminating your thinking, the fruit is goodness and righteousness. It is to produce righteousness. Goodness and righteousness and truth, trying to learn what is pleasing to the Lord. Point number four. There is a mandate to produce righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.22 Now flee from youthful lusts and pursue righteousness. There is an active agenda here. 1 Timothy 6.11 But flee from these things, you man of God, and pursue righteousness. It is to be an objective in the spiritual life. A mandate to produce righteousness. 2 Timothy 2.22 and 1 Timothy 6.11 And then point number five, production righteousness is the result of the renovation of the thinking. There's a process here. First you renovate your thinking and under the filling of God the Holy Spirit and the result is a production of righteousness. It's the result of the renovation of the thinking based on Bible doctrine and the filling of the Holy Spirit, not based on moral reformation through the energy of the flesh. 2 Timothy 3.16, All Scripture is inspired or breathed out by God and is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for what? For training in righteousness. Philippians 1, 9, 10, and 11. This is Paul's prayer. This I pray that your love may abound still more and more in real knowledge and all discernment. That tells you right there that this is not an emotional, sentimental, feel-good, warm, fuzzy love in the spiritual life. It is a love that abounds and is related to knowledge and discernment. It flows from the intellect, not the emotions. So that, result clause, so that you may approve the things that are excellent in order to be what? Sincere and blameless until the day of Christ, having been filled with the fruit of righteousness. 
which comes through Jesus Christ to the glory and praise of God. So the seed of divine viewpoint thinking, when this seed is planted in your soul, it produces righteousness. And it is sown in peace by those who make peace. Now, the reason he concludes with that, and once again, this is shalom, the absence of tranquility. Remember, chapter divisions and verse divisions were not added until much later. So don't read the chapter division. It says, The seed whose fruit is righteousness is sown in peace by those who make peace. And then he moves to the next subject. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? What's well, going to be human viewpoint thinking? And that's why he's making this, this point that when you're operating on divine viewpoint thinking, there is going to be harmony in relationships. Why? No arrogance. And we'll get to that next Wednesday night with our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we thank You for the privilege we have to look at Your Word, to be challenged by these things, to see how important it is to think Your thoughts after You, to let our thinking be renovated that Your wisdom saturates every part of our thinking so that we can see these results, so that we can face the trials and testing of life on the basis of the eternal principles of Your Word and not upon our subjective impressions or the uh, techniques of human viewpoint thinking which ultimately will not produce lasting consequences. Father, remind us of these things. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.